Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown. Today is Wednesday, February the 9th, 2022, and I want to wish everyone a happy Bagels and Locks Day. Hopefully you started off your morning with a balanced breakfast that included uh, some bread and some cream cheese with smoked salmon in it. If not, we have some very digestible things that we can share with you, including the rundown uh, of each of the week's news stories that we thought were interesting and applicable to uh, the enterprise IT crowd. Um, joining me is uh, a very important part of a balanced breakfast, and that would be Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, I had a delicious omelet with cheese. Well, you know, it's not a bagel, but I bet you it definitely helps because we're going to need lots of energy to make it through the news stories that we have going on today. Um, we're going to go ahead and start off with uh, a fun one. Uh, one of our favorite topics here on the rundown is talking about CPUs and chip manufacturing. Um, and this story is actually not about Intel. Instead, it's about the European Union because we've covered a lot of stories recently talking about how the US is uh, ramping up chip fabrication facilities and, and trying to bring a little bit more of that production uh, in country. Uh, but the EU announced this week that they're going to start doing the same thing. They have uh, put out the European Chips Act. And they're starting it off with a, an investment of around 11 billion euros. The act is actually a series of measures that are designed to kind of strengthen the chip design and manufacturing uh, industries inside of the EU. And it's also going to try to help increase the competitiveness for European companies that are doing those chip designs and, and possibly even find a way to bring in mega fab facilities to uh, not only consume them internally, but also sell them on the global markets. Now, the commissioners of the act really want to see the Europeans um, get into the kind of cutting edge chip designs, uh, maybe even get as low as sub one nanometer was uh, something that was announced in this press release. Um, Stephen, is this a good way for the EU to kind of position themselves in the chip market, essentially to say, hey, we're going to make our own chips, but we're going to make some of that cutting edge stuff that you can't get anywhere else. And we're going to be able to do it because we're really throwing some investment around here. Well, Kind of no. <laughs> uh, for one thing, this isn't actually a lot of investment in the scope of things when you talk about uh, leading edge chip manufacturing. 11 billion euros is certainly a lot of money, but uh, the U.S. is putting 50 billion dollars into it, and that's not considered a lot of money in the scale of uh, chip manufacturing. So sure, is 11 billion dollars going to do something? Yeah, probably. But uh, is it going to make a significant impact? Mm, probably not. And frankly, uh, it would be better maybe if they invested in some of the uh, older uh, levels of uh, chip manufacturing, because that's the sort of thing that European uh, manufacturers really need. I mean, they, they really need access to things like power ICs and, you know, the boring kinds of chips that are manufactured on older process nodes. And those are the ones that are constrained and holding back the global economy. But that being said, the EU is definitely targeting this $11 billion toward leading edge chip manufacturing, which makes us think, what are they going at here? Well, I would say that they're going at uh, two companies in particular. First off is our friend Pat Gelsinger and Intel. Now, Intel had already announced that they were thinking of building a new chip fab in uh, Europe, which might be in France or Germany or Belgium, we'll see. And uh, that chip fab would indeed probably be a leading edge process node uh, fab. So I'm sure that uh, Pat Gelsinger got on his uh, private jet with his, uh, with his cat and uh, flew to uh, Brussels and said, yes, yes, I will take some of your $11 billion and I will build a leading edge chip fab in Europe. 
And uh, that, I'm sure, was wonderful. But the other company that benefits is one I think that's very important and very overlooked in the global supply chain. This is a company called ASML. And no, that doesn't mean somebody whispering into a microphone. What it means is uh, ASML Holding is a Dutch company that actually makes all of the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines that exist on the planet today. They basically have a monopoly on leading edge process nodes. In other words, nobody can build a leading edge fab without the involvement of ASML. And remember, ASML is based in the Netherlands. Now, they also have researchers globally, particularly in the United States, and manufacturing globally. What this means is that in order to have leading edge chip fab, you basically have to invest in ASML. And since ASML is a European company, on the leading edge of fabrication, that means that they're probably gonna get a lot of this money too. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if they got in their uh, diesel electric hybrid and drove over from Veldhoven in the Netherlands and said, yes, we'll take the rest of the money that Pat Gelsinger doesn't take and decided to expand their operations. And honestly, if I was Europe, I would be investing like crazy in ASML because the truth is that Europe is in the lead in advanced chip fabs. They just don't have the fabs themselves. And so by investing in ASML uh, or by investing in leading edge fabs, they're effectively benefiting the people of Europe, the workers, the, the researchers, they're solidifying Europe's position in the global chip industry. And frankly, that's all good. So that's kind of my angle on this story. Tom, uh, we've mentioned uh, Jessica Rosenworcel, the FCC chairwoman, uh, many times here. And she met with Congress this week and told them that their proposed plan to remove Chinese telecom equipment from U.S. businesses was going to be pretty pricey. The uh, Secure and Trusted Communications Network Reimbursement Program, also called SCNBIT, is uh, passed to provide funding uh, for businesses that were re removing telecom equipment from uh, personas non grata like Huawei and ZTE Corporation. The filing window for reimbursement was open from October 29th, uh, 2021 through January 28th of this year. And per the report, there were 181 applications at a total potential cost of $5.6 billion. Tom, why is this number so high compared to the initial estimates? Because I'm pretty sure the initial estimates were based on what the what the equipment was sold for, and the current estimates of what it's going to cost to replace it include things like time, include things like potential outage um, costs, and the fact that companies that really want to get a foothold into a market may be willing to sell the equipment a little cheaper than it than normal. Uh, so one of the things you have to understand about this is that Huawei and ZTE. Uh, corporation were really, really trying to get into the U.S. market. They really wanted to to get a foothold here effectively. Now, if you are someone who is mm, optimistic about the reasons why, you might think, oh, well, you know, they've had a hard time getting into the U.S. market. They really want to try to get some of their kit in here because it's a it's a wide open market that would give them access to a lot of businesses and things like that. If you're a little bit more pessimistic, you may believe, oh, well, you know, they're just trying to get their stuff installed in places where they can hijack traffic and send it back to their their uh, government uh, spies and stuff like that. I don't think either one of those is 
all entirely true. I, I tend to lean more on the optimistic side of things that they really did just want to get into new markets and and have a lot of opportunity to make lots of sales. Um, but in order to do that, you have to be able to beat the incumbents on price. Um, one of the nice things is, is that when you are effectively a, a large chunk of your business is done through the government of your country, um, sometimes you can cut that to cost or maybe even below and, and get into that market, which is great. That's kind of how business works. Uh, the problem comes whenever you have to replace that equipment. <clears throat> so if you sold it to them at or below cost and uh, the, you know, let's, let's be honest, what um, telecom company around here wouldn't install similar equipment for effectively half the price. Most of them would. Well, now you're going to go out and be like, okay, well, this is the specs of the equipment that I have to replace. And I'm going to go to approved vendors, which in this case would be companies like Cisco, Juniper, Nokia, um, a lot of companies who sell like things like carrier gear. Uh, sticker shock is going to happen because you're going to have to replace that equipment, which in some cases could be years old with something relatively new uh, and with the same functionality level, but you're going to have to pay market price or you're going to have to pay reassuringly expensive yet slightly discounted prices. And so when the when the bidding process went out and these uh, was it 181 companies decided that they wanted to put these bids in in three months, by the way, this thing took they were open for three months and they had 180 people who were like, yeah, we got to get all this stuff out of here. But if you're paying for it, cool, we'll do it. Um, that's a lot of money. Um, it's it's good news for the people who make the equipment here domestically or, or you know, com countries that are friendly to us. But ultimately, you know, that's not a process that's going to be done overnight. Um, you're gonna, if anyone who's ever worked with government programs like the the one that uh, works in schools called E-Rate, um, this is a multi-year process. You're going to have to get the funding. You're going to have to submit the equipment that you want, uh, get it approved. You have to order it. It's going to have to be delivered. And we're in the middle of a chip shortage. So <laughs> lead times on switches are already nine to 12 months. Then you're going to have to get it. They're going to have to schedule the installation. Then you're going to have to make sure that it all works. This is not something that's going to happen overnight. This money is going to be tied up for a number of years. And and eventually we'll get to the point where it will all kind of come out in the wash. Um, but then you've set a precedent of, okay, so maybe the next time that ZTE or Huawei comes knocking on my door, and uh, even if they're ever allowed to sell in the U.S. again, maybe the company is like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the government and be like, well, they're going to offer me this. And if you don't offer me more money, I'm just going to go ahead and put them back in and we're going to do this whole dance all over again. So I, I don't exactly know how this is going to work out in the long run. I really hope it, it it's, it's a net positive, but I mean, it's 6 billion net positives right now for somebody's bank account. All right, Stephen, I just want to double check with you that everyone knows that automatically executing macros and documents is bad, right? Well, everyone seemed to have known that except for our friends over at Microsoft, because in a stunning change of policy, the application giant has finally decided to block automatic execution of VBA macro scripts in their five biggest office applications. Yes, in 2022, they finally decided this. The change is one that has been sought by security researchers for many years. And the reason why is because there is a lot of malware on the internet that exploits this ability to execute macros automatically to uh, drop payloads on systems. Okay, kind of makes sense. Um, one of the other changes that they decided to make this week was that they were going to disable the ability to automatically sideload code from a manifest in a Microsoft installer file. 
which again, sounds like something you probably should have blocked already. Um, in this particular case, this was the infection vector that the Emotet malware framework was using to be able to drop certain payloads on a system and then pull down code at a later date to kind of continue the infection process. Um, you know, Microsoft is seems to be notorious for enabling these features and then not disabling them when people take advantage of them. But Stephen, the question is, why did it take so long for Microsoft to figure out they needed to stop this, even though people have been talking about it for years? Yeah, to quote a great Disney movie, this is a threat as old as time. Macros are the beast. The truth is that uh, this stuff was introduced, no kidding, 29 years ago in Excel uh, 5.0. That's actually before I started my IT career. And the first uh, macro-based virus appeared probably 28 years ago, as soon as somebody realized what you could do with VBA. Since then, in the dawn of the internet and people mailing spreadsheets and Word documents around, it's just gone everywhere. Do you remember the Melissa virus in 1999 that uh, caused uh, Microsoft Word to email the first 50 people in your address book? Yep, macro virus. So this stuff is, is, is not <laughs> surprising. This stuff has been known literally since I was a young whippersnapper first freezing in the data center. But yet it took this long to address it. Now, uh, Microsoft did start issuing warnings and, and, and changing file extensions and you know sort of uh, implementing things that might encourage people not to let themselves get infected by macroviruses as early as Office 2007. But uh, frankly, they didn't do much. And if you, uh, even up till, I don't know, yesterday, all it was was a little yellow security warning banner that says, watch out. Do you really want to do this? And people could click, yup. And of course, we all know that end users are all trained to click, yup, whenever they're given the option. So they did, and it did nothing. I'm really glad that they're making this move, though. Uh, you know, yes, it took too long, but I I'm glad that they made this move. Now, the button doesn't say, yup. The button says, <laughs> sorry, dude, nope, nope. You can click a button, you can learn more, uh, but this stuff is disabled, and that's probably for the best for everybody, uh, because this is everywhere. I mean, this is one of the most popular and, and, and uh, useful, I, I use that in a ironic sense, uh, malware vectors out there. So yeah, thank you, Microsoft, for doing this. Um, it's about time, and you know, maybe we should all just let it go on the old uh, macros in Office applications. Tom, at Networking Field Day and other events over the last few years, we've been hearing a lot about private 5G. It seems like this is one of the hottest spaces for wireless providers in, uh, over the next few years, and it's so useful in industrial applications, airports, that sort of thing. Well, last week, Cisco announced that they're getting into the private 5G space as well. Uh, per the blog post that you can see if you look at the show notes, uh, you'll see that Cisco is exploring ways to integrate private 5G radio networks with their industrial IoT devices to help provide robust connectivity and unify IT and OT networks. As with many private 5G offerings, Cisco is touting the ease of installation and the pay-as-you-go model compared to traditional 5G infrastructure players. What do you make of Cisco's push into 5G private? Well, I find it interesting that their push into the private 5G space doesn't track with what we would consider to be the very first 
um, movers in that market. So if you want to rewind the clock a couple of years to Mobility Field Day, where we talked to a company called Salona, um, they were one of the very first companies that we got to talk to that were uh, looking to do private LTE, which obviously LTE being kind of fourth generation networks, private 5G is the the uh, next iteration of that. Solana was specifically going after the client market. And, and you know, you, you have uh, client devices, say, like in a warehouse or in some space where you can enable uh, the private 5G connectivity. And, and effectively, you know, if you want to go back and watch those videos, you absolutely can because they're really fascinating. And I learned a lot about the, five, the, the private space. But effectively, compared to like having big towers and base stations and, and all this other, you know, power hungry equipment that you have to deploy, this effectively feels a lot more like a kind of Wi-Fi. You have things that look like access points. You have things that look like controllers, and you kind of position them very similarly so that you, you know, have certain coverage areas. It's just in a different band. Well, the new generation of people who are doing private five G and Cisco, of course, in the story is one. Intel is another. Um, they're very much targeting specific slices of of the technology. I know Intel has talked a lot about things like sensors. And in IoT as well, and I'm sure that Cisco's is kind of starting out on the IoT track because that's one of the places that they're really focusing their technology development um, is that unification of IT and OT. Uh, I, I would expect pretty soon we'll see Cisco kind of positioning private 5G also for these, you know, small headless sensors that you can kind of festoon across in an in environment, things like uh, temperature sensors and stuff like that. But they don't run on Wi-Fi; they run on private 5G. Okay, why is that such a big deal? Well, 5G just kind of works. Um, it can operate at a lower power threshold. It's uh, more regulated, which means you don't have to worry about a lot of interference coming from other devices. Um, it's just, it's it's built a little bit better. Not to say that Wi-Fi is bad, it just requires a little bit more care and feeding. And so by doing this, you can effectively create these isolated networks that on the back end function very similarly to the ones that you're used to, um, but there's a little bit more develop, development that has gone into them. And it allows you to kind of build these um, secure, stable networks to connect your operational technologies. I think this is going to work out well for Cisco. If you look at the way that things have been tracking over the last few years for them, uh, they are very much talking about these connected devices, these smart cities, if you will. But more importantly, for Cisco, the real value here is not just selling them new equipment. It's selling them equipment that integrates with the existing structure that they've put together. We have IoT networks today. We have SCADA networks. We have all kinds of crazy operational things that, quite honestly, are like um, a foreign language to most enterprise IT folks. The real value comes in the fact that all of this stuff is going to start reporting to your favorite network monitoring platform. You can pull information and analytics from that platform, just like you can with anything else, only now you're going to have a bunch more devices that are connected to it. And it gives you a lot more flexibility to help um, provide feedback on those things so that you know when something has gone down, so that you know when you need to dispatch to a technician to do that. And because the technicians that are going to go work on it, at least on the network side of it, are the people that you already employ in enterprise IT, um, it's a little bit of a cost reduction. Uh, you don't have to call in a specialized consultant that makes hundreds of dollars an hour to come flip on switches and go, yeah, I think it works now. I don't know much about this networking stuff. So I think this is a good play for Cisco, especially when you think about the the um, market that they're going to be getting into, the the people they're going to be playing with. Like I said, aforementioned Intel. Um, I don't see this being a, com a competition for the uh, the providers like Solana. 
um, people who are offering this to clients. This is going to be a headless client um, infrastructure play only. And I think ultimately it's, it's going to give them some adjacencies that they can work into and kind of expand their market. All right, Stephen, um, we got a story that we want to take a little bit of a closer look at. Um, I'm sure if you're a fan of the rundown, you, you kind of know which one we're going to be talking about here. Um, but something we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into because it is finally, finally, finally official that NVIDIA has announced that they are dropping their plans to acquire chipmaker ARM. The final, final, final nail in the coffin comes with a very steep price tag, however, because ARM and SoftBank, the company that owns ARM currently, is entitled to keep up to $2 billion in fees that were paid at the initial announcement of this acquisition. That includes a $1.25 billion, um, basically, penalty for NVIDIA that, that they were going to have to pay no matter what. Um, NVIDIA cited very strong negative reaction to the merger, and I'm pretty sure at this point they realized that they need to cut their losses because it's not going to happen. Now, we've covered this a lot on the rundown over the years, Stephen, and you were one of the very first people to say you didn't think that this was going to happen. And we've spent most of our time talking about the NVIDIA side of it. But a lot of the things that are coming out now that we've kind of prepared ourselves for this fact that NVIDIA isn't going to make this happen is what's going to happen to ARM. And the reason why we're going to bring this up today is because SoftBank has quietly begun talking about the fact that they may take ARM public in an IPO once again, because let's be honest, they need the cash. Um, SoftBank has been kind of floating adrift ever since that whole WeWork thing happened. And uh, some of the financial reporting uh, companies are now talking about the fact that SoftBank is facing some potential exposure from uh, future issues of regulation around some things in their portfolio and stuff like that. And quite honestly, they need the cash to be able to either divest themselves of these positions or shore up things and, and make some better investments. Um, Stephen, the big question that I have now for you as someone who's been following this closely is, will ARM going public kind of be a way to get out of this problematic situation that they found in? Is it going to restore some public confidence in their ability? And like we talked about earlier with this, um, this drive to do the EU chip investment, one of the things that comes up is ARM is owned by a UK company, which now is not part of the UK or I'm sorry, not part of the EU. They're kind of their own little thing. So they really can't benefit from this investment. What's this going to mean for ARM down the road? Yeah, I, I've always said uh, that, well, first, I've always said that NVIDIA was never going to get ARM, but yeah, we, we, we'll take that as read. Um, I've always said that ARM's best bet would be to be a public company. Um, I think that, uh, frankly, that, that makes the most sense. It would allow some of these big companies that rely on ARM to become major investors in ARM and, and shareholders in ARM, but hopefully it would keep them from uh, accruing too much ownership and it would allow ARM to be a global resource, a global uh, company in, in, in the best sense of that word. And that's really why this was all stopped by the uh, MOFCOM in China and the United States uh, regulators as well, is uh, the challenge of NVIDIA owning ARM would have put well, some pretty big roadblocks in front of, uh, you know, future competition in chip architecture. So really, I think that an IPO makes a lot of sense. So let's take a moment and use the Wayback Machine and revisit, like, sort of how did we get here in the first place? So for one thing, ARM actually goes back way, way back in the, in the dawn of time. Um, the, but the company was actually founded after the uh, advanced risk machines in the 80s. So the company was founded in 1990. And in, um, 
in uh, 2016, uh, SoftBank agreed to buy Arm for the equivalent of $32 billion. That's uh, 23 billion pounds. And uh, the transaction was completed in 2016. And so SoftBank effectively took over Arm. Now, what is SoftBank? SoftBank is basically a big um, private equity company. And they have something called the Vision Fund, which is an open uh, private equity fund that other investors can get into. And in 2017, SoftBank put 25% of ARM into the Vision Fund. So when people talk about SoftBank uh, being successful or making money or something, uh, it's a little bit uh, confounded sometimes because sometimes they're talking about SoftBank, the company. Sometimes they're talking about the Vision Fund. And SoftBank actually has a Vision Fund 2 as well that they they recently started. So there's a a couple of different entities here. But really, the ownership of ARM is in the hands of SoftBank and partially in the hands of the Vision Fund. The Vision Fund has lost money. As you mentioned, the WeWork uh, fiasco was a big problem for SoftBank, and they lost some money on that. In fact, uh, it's said that they lost about $18 billion on that whole mess a couple of years ago. Uh, And they laid off some staff and it looked real bad. But the thing is that SoftBank has actually done pretty well with the Vision Fund overall. It went from about $100 billion to well over $150 billion now. And in fact, they made a record profit of uh, $37 billion on their investment in in a company called Coupang, which is basically the Amazon of South Korea just recently. And so the Vision Fund is actually in pretty good shape. An IPO of part of ARM in the Vision Fund would actually really help uh, reap some of that profit because NVIDIA was really only going to offer, I mean, they only offered $40 billion for, uh, for ARM Limited, which, you know, in kind of in retrospect, seeing some of the other acquisitions that are going on, you know, specifically, you know, some of the, the seemingly less significant acquisitions like, you know, AMD acquiring Xilinx, which we talked about last week. Uh, that doesn't look like a lot of money for such an important company. I imagine that an IPO will probably be more profitable overall. And as you mentioned, uh, they get to keep uh, one and a quarter to $2 billion of NVIDIA's money as well. So I think SoftBank is pretty well lined up here to make this thing happen. Now, they probably won't IPO uh, most of the shares. I bet that they're probably only going to IPO less than half. And that, I think, would be important for the regulators because it would essentially allow a Japanese company to retain ownership, majority ownership of ARM, no matter what happens. And it would keep a company like NVIDIA or, I don't know, Intel or, you know, take your pick from making effectively a hostile uh, acquisition by just buying all the shares uh, that are are in public. Uh, So that's what I see is going to happen. And so overall, uh, this is going to be good news financially for SoftBank itself, uh, for the Vision Fund, and frankly, for all the rest of us, because I think all of us can see that ARM is a really important technology for the data center going forward. And so from a technology perspective, for the folks who watch the uh, Gestalt IT rundown, the important thing to understand is that the ARM instruction set, uh, the ARM processor designs, all of that is in very, very good shape. Uh, moving forward if this is the plan that happens. Because ARM would be well-funded, it would have access to public funding markets, you know, ARM could, you know, issue new shares, they would be able to use this uh, public listing uh, in in a way to get uh, better rates on corporate bonds and so on. Effectively, the company would be on solid footing once again, 
and they would be able to invest and grow, which is really what we want. So again, last week we talked about the growing uh, competition between Intel and AMD and NVIDIA for the data center and the cloud. This acquisition or, or uh, action, this spinoff, this IPO, would add ARM firmly into that mix. Now, ARM is a very different company than those others. It's not a hardware company and it's not building you know, enterprise platforms that include FPGAs and you know, network offload cards and all this kind of stuff. But, but ARM is undoubtedly a very important component there and, and, it, and it would allow ARM to have a seat at the big boy table going forward. So overall, I'm really happy with this result. And this is pretty much the result that folks like me hoped for for ARM. See, I think that this is ultimately good for ARM because what it allows is for this, mm, this situation where one person decides what ARM's going to do to go away. Um, like you said, SoftBank is likely only going to offer less than half of the shares because they still want to have a little bit of a controlling interest in the company. But as we've seen over the years, and I will tell you that it has been a number of years since I went through finance in college, and I am not a stockbroker, and I do not offer financial advice, someone who owns as little as 8 or 10% of a company can have a massive impact on the way that it, it is uh operated, how how things work. And the reason why is because that's just enough of a controlling interest to get other people to kind of back you on things. And I think that this is important overall for the, the industry as a whole, because when you have people who have differing visions inside of a company that are that have enough of an ownership stake to kind of drive how things work, that forces compromise. So if SoftBank just was like, hey, we need to get rid of this and whoever wants to buy it can have it and NVIDIA comes charging in, and a lot of people were like, ah, I don't know how I feel about this because NVIDIA could do a lot of really janky stuff with it. Like, like you can see that that would be bad, but if nobody is there to speak up, if there's no investors that say, hey, wait a minute, I don't think we're getting a good return on an investment here, like, like that could have gone horribly if the, if the uh, regulars hadn't stepped forward. But now, uh, assuming that all other things pay out, play out the way we had expected, where they're going to go public, now you've got a bunch of people inside of the investment sphere who are like, no, 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 no. I think we need to do something a little bit different. It also allows companies that want a an interest in what ARM is doing to effectively buy in. And so what I think you're actually going to see is a situation not too dissimilar from what we have right now with networking industry giant Broadcom. Broadcom makes a bunch of chipsets that are being used by a number of companies in the networking space to uh, build platforms. Um, I could list off many companies that use uh, Broadcom's Merchant Silicon. But ultimately, you know who controls that? Broadcom. If you want to partner with Broadcom to help develop certain add-ons and things like that, or make sure that certain uh, performance targets are hit, you are more than welcome to put your money where your mouth is. You're not going to buy Broadcom and then immediately lock them down and say nobody else can use those chips but us. So I think what's going to happen is, is that ARM is going to have a bunch of people that are wanting to put development in there, which could eventually mean that they're going to diversify their chipset a little bit. They're going to offer some different um, competing products inside of their own product line that meet the needs of very specific areas of the uh, industry. But ultimately, what it means is that ARM is going to make a boatload of money by doing that, which I don't think you would have seen that happen if they had been acquired by NVIDIA or frankly, anyone for that matter. 
and I, and that ultimately will be good because it will force the other people in the market to address those concerns. And you know, going all the way back in the Wayback Machine to 1994, 1995, risk architecture has changed everything. Thank you, hackers, um, for the better. But swallowing ARM as a whole would have only ended up bad. And I'll tell you why, and that is Apple computers. Apple effectively took the ARM architecture that they wanted and all but forked it into the new M1 chipsets, which is not really new. It's an iteration on all their platforms, yada, yada, yada. But if NVIDIA had succeeded in buying ARM, I expect that there would have been a lot more forking. There would have been a lot more specialized development that wasn't shared with the rest of the industry. And we would have found ourselves locked into Intel, AMD, and everybody else who built on ARM but can't get together and make it work. Now, this elevates ARM into a level where they can effectively be, I don't know, a platform for competitors to build on so that they don't have to develop their own intellectual property. They can get a basic set and then immediately leap to an area where they can compete, even if it's just in one space, with the titans in the industry. Yeah. One more thing I'll mention, by the way, is that some of the pundits are saying that this will be a less lucrative deal for SoftBank uh, than the NVIDIA acquisition. And that's certainly true because NVIDIA, remember, was going to buy the whole pile. And an IPO is not going to be the whole pile. An IPO is only going to be part of the pile. But that being said, again, I don't want to be all financial analysty on you here, but frankly, having shares in a public company, especially a high-flying public company, might actually be more sensible and it might actually make SoftBank's uh, value even greater in the long term, even if it doesn't look so in the short term. So I really feel like this is the best decision for SoftBank, the best decision for ARM. And and frankly, NVIDIA bowed out gracefully and said, you know, look, we had to, we had to take a shot. It was worth taking a shot and it didn't work out. And that's that. So, you know, makes sense. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Stephen. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of interesting news this week, and uh, I think there's a lot of good things that we talked about. But we also want to look at what's happening in the few weeks ahead, because there's a lot of uh, in industry events that are starting to to uh, accelerate, if you will. Um, we're starting to see a lot more people that are, are interested in, in holding their annual user conferences. Um, but we have a big, exciting event coming up next week. Why don't you tell everybody about that? Yeah, I'm very excited uh, next week to be hosting our uh, fabulous and wonderful Cloud Field Day event. So we will be uh, streaming live at a uh, techfieldday.com or LinkedIn near you. Uh, we've got a great set of delegates, many of whom will be joining us in person in California and some of whom will be joining remotely. And the same with the presenters. So we actually have nine companies presenting uh, in no specific order. We've got Metallic, a Commvault Venture, RackN, uh, Casten by Veeam, Pure Storage, VMware, Stormforge, uh, Racktop, Fortinet, and NetApp. And so I do encourage you to tune in Wednesday through Friday next week and uh, check those out. Otherwise, we, of course, will be posting the videos soon to our YouTube channel. And as we mentioned in, uh, in previous episodes, uh, Mobile World Congress will be happening at the end of February, February 28th through the March the 3rd. So expect a lot more news about things like 5G radios or Wi-Fi chipsets <clears throat> to be coming out over the next couple of weeks, um, kind of ahead of Mobile World Congress. Um, I'm, we will be hearing a lot from the carriers, and I'm sure that there's going to be a lot that we want to talk about there. Um, but Stephen, uh, in March, you've got uh, a really cool field day event coming up as well. 
Yeah, we've got our storage field day coming back March 9th through 11th. And there again, we've got a great group of delegates. About half of them are going to be in the room and about half of them are going to be virtual. Uh, and again, same for the companies. It's a hybrid event as well. And we've got fun companies there like Pure Storage, Hammerspace, uh, Newcomer, Sios, and Fungible, and MinIO have always been great. So we're really looking forward to that. Again, that's going to be uh, March 9th through 11th. And the week after, we have a special new event that we are excited to be telling you about. <clears throat> we are going to be doing an exclusive event with our friends over at Cisco. Um, we're going to be talking about some of the new technologies that they're going to be releasing. We're going to uh, take a deep dive into some of the, uh, the cool applications behind it and how practitioners in the enterprise IT space can use it. Um, we've got a number of technologies around enterprise IT. Um, also cloud, uh, maybe even some service provider stuff. You're definitely going to want to stay tuned for that. Um, we should have more information up on our website soon about Tech Field Day exclusive with Cisco 2022. So make sure you stay tuned for that. And we will definitely be sharing more information as soon as we have it. Um, we will also be sharing more news stories every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern time on the Gestalt IT Rundown. Um, we uh, comb the internet each week to find exciting things that we'd like to bring to you so that you can tune in and follow us on our website at gestaltit.com or on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo. Um, you can also subscribe to The Rundown in your podcast application of choice if you'd like to consume it um, in an audio format, maybe a little ASMR tech news, if that's a thing. Maybe I just created a new market to get into. Um, but, you know, if you uh, have suggestions for stories that you'd like to see, please make sure you tweet at Gestalt IT and use the hashtag rundown. Uh, we'll see those and we'll toss those into the show list and maybe give you some coverage and a little bit of our perspective on it as well. Um, and we always love comments on the videos. We've seen a lot of great ones over the years kind of talking about some of the, the perspectives that we have on this. I mean, if you go all the way back to uh, when Stephen originally said that the whole NVIDIA ARM thing probably wasn't going to happen. Uh, I wonder if the comments there are as supportive as we are, you know, here today, almost two years later, seeing that it, in fact, did not happen. Um, but, you know, we uh, we will definitely bring you more prognostication than analysis in the next episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown next week. So thank you very much. Enjoy a happy National Pizza Day as well. Um, go out for lunch and, and get yourself a nice New York style pie, maybe with some pepperoni. Um, or if you're a fan of vegetables, I'm sure that there's some you can put on there. Uh, not Just not olives. Olives don't belong on pizza. But uh, for Stephen Foskett, for Tom Hollingsworth, and the rest of our pizza-loving Gestalt IT community, thank you very much for tuning in, and we will see you next week.